0: We're spending some time in Lent as we lead up towards Easter in reflecting on Psalms and reflecting on those moments in our lives when we truly thirst for God, when life around us seems difficult and we thirst for God. So we're going to have our readings and then James is going to come and preach.
1: The first reading the heights of Hermon and Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. By day, the Lord directs his love. At night, his song is with with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Saviour and my God. The second reading is from the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This is the word of the Lord.
0: As Debbie just said, we're into the uh, series on thirsting for God. And we're going to explore that a bit in a moment, but as we sit, let us pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open our hearts. You would speak to us through your word, draw close to us and help us to draw close to you. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Now, the book of Psalms, of course, was was the songbook of the Old Testament. Um, But I'm going to begin with some words from another song, from another era. Uh, If you're from my generation, you'll probably recognize these words straight away. But if you're not, then you probably won't. Let's see, here's how, here's how it goes. When I was younger, so much younger than today, I never needed anyone's help in any way. But now those days are gone, I'm not so self-assured. Help me, if you can. I'm feeling down. And I do appreciate your being round. Help me get my feet back on the ground. Won't you please, please help me? Ah, Esther knows. (laughs) Yes, it's from uh, Help by the Beatles. And uh, a few years later, uh, after the song was released, in an interview for a music magazine, John Lennon said this. When Help came out in 1965, I was actually crying out for help. Most people think it's just a fast rock and roll song. I didn't realise it at the time, but later I knew I really was crying out for help. I also go through deep depressions where I would like to jump out the window, you know. I was depressed and crying out for help. Now, I don't think it's too far-fetched to say that the writer of, of this psalm, Psalm 42, was going through some very similar feelings. But the setting couldn't be more different. Um, And incidentally, it doesn't say at the beginning who wrote the psalm, um, but I don't know if you noticed on the screen that it's it's dedicated, if you like, to the sons of Korah, K-O-R-A-H. So I hope you don't mind. I'm going to call the writer of the psalm Korah. Um, It saves a lot of trouble. And there are several different scenarios that experts paint, use to paint to describe what might have been going on in the background. Korah comes, according to the one that uh, uh, seems to make most sense to me, Korah comes from the northern part of Israel, close to Mount Hermon. And it's been his custom and in his joy to lead pilgrimages of worship uh, down to the temple in Jerusalem, and uh, he was uh, a priest and probably a musician as well. Um, but the king at that time put a stop to all these pilgrimages uh, from the north. And Korah is devastated. And so he pours out his feelings through this psalm, Psalm 42, and on into the next one, Psalm 43, uh, which is really part of the same song. And it has the same chorus at the end. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? You see, I think these trips were probably his lifeblood. And when they'd ended, it's obvious that he is completely devastated by what's happened. And verse 4 in in the passage uh, gave us a a flavour of what it was like for this man. These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go to the house of God Under the protection of the mighty one, with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. There's a real sense of the wonder that he would have felt every time he took that group to the temple in Jerusalem, and that joy that he had in serving God and worshipping him there. And whenever there was a festival, he'd be there leading from the front, and serving God was his delight. And he rejoiced in it. But now it's all been stopped. And he's effectively been exiled up in the north. And all around him, people are mocking him. Where's your God? Verse 3 puts it like this. My tears have been my food day and night. While people say to me all day long, where is your God? And it's not hard, is it, to, to hear that note of desperation in the way he is writing. A hunted beast has to drink to survive, even though just stopping to drink might lead to its death. And in the same way, his soul is thirsting for God. And he's crying out to God, I want to be with you. And I wonder, is is that our cry? We come along week by week, We sing some songs, we pray a bit, we listen to the Bible read and explained. But do we, inside, know, perhaps, that we've lost that sense of the presence of God? The joy that we once had as Christians is missing. And the world around us makes it hard for us to go on living for Christ. In a moment, we'll think about answers to those sort of questions, explore that theme more deeply. But if we're going to get the most from this psalm, there's just something we need to get straight first. And it's to do with a a word that comes here and there during the psalm, six times, in fact. Uh, And it's very important to help us to get inside the psalmist's mind. And it's the word soul. As the deer pants for streams of water so my soul pants for you, O oh God. But there's a problem, isn't there? What exactly is the human soul? And the Bible isn't 100% clear about this. But there are enough clues for us to get some sort of an idea about it. And so one of the things that the Bible makes clear is that every, in, within every human being there is a soul that lasts eternally after we die. Genesis records the death of Rachel, Jacob's wife, and tells us that she named her son as her soul was departing. So the soul is different from the body and it lives on after physical death. A lot of people think that the soul, is, the human soul, is the same as the human spirit But in that reading that we had just now from Hebrews, it suggested otherwise. The word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit. The Bible also teaches that the soul is created by God and can be lost and found. We read that Jesus is the great shepherd of souls. And the one I like best of all comes in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew wrote these words, quoting Jesus. Come to me and find rest for your souls. So what then exactly is our soul? Well, there's an American writer called Dallas Willard, and he's written something I find quite helpful. The soul is the capacity to integrate... All the parts of the inner life into a single whole life. And Willard goes on to explain that the inner life includes our minds, our wills, and even our bodies. Because, as we all know, the state of our bodies affects our inner life. And then Willard went on to say something that should really resonate with those of us who spend far too much time on our computers the soul is rather like the program that runs a computer. You don't usually notice it until it messes up. And that brings me back to Psalm 42. Because uh, Korah, in his inner life, his soul seems to be thoroughly messed up. We only have to look at some of the words that he uses to describe how he's feeling throughout the psalm. Here are a few of them. Thirsty. "...downcast, disturbed, forgotten, mourning, oppressed, and in agony." Now, don't these words indicate that this poor fellow really is pretty depressed? Well, maybe he is, but I'm sure you'll know, and I think it's important to say, that there are different kinds of depression. I don't think that this man is suffering from clinical depression for which, of course, these days medical help would be the most appropriate response. Um, But it it seems much more obvious to me that he's actually suffering from a depression caused by his circumstances. Uh, Situational depression, I gather it's called nowadays. And it can spill over into the spiritual realm and lead us to feel that God has deserted us or to feel that there can't be a God if this sort of thing is happening to us. And my hope is that as we follow through this man's responses to his depression, we'll also find help for ourselves. And I'd like to pick out three words from that little list that I I, I identified that come in the psalm. Three words which seem to me to be at the heart of his problem. And the first word, well, uh, after my introduction, it has to be the word thirsty. Thirsty. Uh, That opening verse again. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? Quite a picture being painted here um, of his inner life. A deer is being chased by a wild animal and it's been running and running before finally escaping. But it finds itself... In an unfamiliar location, desperately thirsty and needing water and needing it quickly if it's going to survive in the Middle Eastern heat. And how is it going to find what it needs? In the same way, Korah is panting and thirsting to find again the God who was once his daily companion, his source of joy and purpose. Now it occurs to me that we have a great advantage compared to Korah because Korah lived around 900 years before Christ. And here are some words that uh, Jesus spoke about thirsting, which Korah, of course, would never have heard. And they come from John chapter 7. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of him will flow rivers of living water. And they tell us what we need to do, and what the outcome will be. And their wonderful, welcoming words, come to me. And they show us that Jesus should be our focus at our times of need, and thirsting, and sorrow. And they echo those other words I mentioned just now from Matthew. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And I wonder, what are we thirsting for? What are our fears and our worries that sometimes drive us from God? Maybe it's job security, our health, our finances, the safety and well-being of our children, It could be many things. Jesus says to each of us, come to me. And isn't that a a great invitation? And the invitation to to come to him works both ways. I wonder if you find yourself, as uh, I often do, waking up with your mind full of fears and negative thoughts. Why not, when you wake up, remember that Jesus is there with you as a friend, and invite him to come and spend the day with you. Invite him to come to you, as well as Jesus calling us to come to him. My second word from Cora's uh, uh, little list is the word downcast. Three times in that psalm, he tells us that his soul is downcast, I consulted a thesaurus. Aren't they amazing? Here are some of the other words that it threw back at me when I looked up downcast. They all begin with D. Despondent, disheartened, discouraged, dispirited, downhearted, disconsolate, despairing. Some of you will know that I have some, what you might call, eel tendencies. So just reading all those words moved me closer to the slippery slope. (laughs) But it seems that perhaps I'm a bit like Korah. But the good news is that he also had strategies for dealing with discouragement. Verse 4. These things I remember, how I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the Mighty One, with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. I wonder, do we sometimes downplay the importance of worshipping together? When we come together, there's a real transaction going on between us and the living God. You might think that Cora is just engaging in nostalgia as he remembers the past. But that's just really sentimentalism. It's tempting, though, isn't it, when we go through a hard time and we're feeling thoroughly downcast, to say to ourselves, I think I'll give church a miss for a while. But in fact, coming and engaging uh, in worship with others can lift our hearts and confirm our faith, even if at first it seems as though we're just going through the motions. Verse 6 said this, My soul is downcast within me, therefore I will remember you. I will remember you. Now it may seem a bit strange when I've just been talking about the importance of remembering God uh, and how he's helped us in the past. If I tell you that my third word from Cora's list is the word Forgotten. It comes in verse nine. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Some of you will have heard of Pete Gregg. He's one of the leaders of the Emmaus Road Church in Guildford and one of the founders of the 24-7 prayer movement. He's also the author of a book called God on Mute which is subtitled Engaging the Silence of Unanswered Prayer I think Cora could have written a book with the same title God why have you forgotten me why won't you answer my prayer and open up the way for me to go on leading worship pilgrimages to the temple in Jerusalem why 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 In Pete Gregg's case, it related to uh, unanswered prayers for his wife, who developed epilepsy after having an operation for the removal of a brain tumour. But for us, it would be different. No doubt many of us have had times, though, of wanting to call out to God, why have you forgotten me? But has God really forgotten us? It may look as though he has. It may feel as if he has. But if you look around in this psalm, it's clear that actually when Korah uses the word forgotten, it's actually a bit of an overstatement. You can tell that from the previous verse, where he just has just said this, By day the Lord directs his love, at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. That doesn't sound as though deep down he really thinks that God has forgotten him. But how good that Cora is able to express his despondency with all these why questions. Some people say that they think it's wrong to shout out to God, why is this happening to me? But I don't think that's true. If I can say this reverently, I think God is man enough to accept shouts without getting offended. In fact, why prayers are actually prayers of faith. If we had no faith, we wouldn't ask God what he's up to. Cora may not have asked his question in an entirely correct theological fashion. But does that matter when he's so obviously reaching out to the God that he's known in the past? Thirsty, downcast, forgotten. All three of those words are are rather sad words. But they're also honest words. And what I love about this psalm is that it starts from a place of longing, of panting and thirsting. But it goes on to speak about hope and praise and this longing lies at the heart of what it means to be a Christian some people describe this as a now but not yet experience from time to time we get experiences or glimpses of God and his wonder and glory but they are occasional and even then they're just a poor reflection of the full glory that we shall see one day The up and down chorus, if you like, which punctuates this psalm, is just like this. My soul, why are you downcast? Why are you so disturbed within me? But then it goes up and finishes. Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Saviour and my God. And I find, don't you, that the Christian life is often yo-yos, up and down in the same way. The remembrance of God's goodness keeps our feet grounded and the longing keeps our hearts straining ahead to the hope of future transformation. We often finish our sermons uh, with a prayer, a spoken prayer. But instead, today, I wonder if we could keep a time of silence and use it to bring our why questions, our hopes, and our longings before God. In the book of Hebrews, there's a sentence that helps us to know what we're doing when we pray in this way. It goes like this. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So, in this moment of silence that we're about to have, if you feel comfortable doing this, why not just hold your hands, up, your palms upturned like this beside you? It's a picture, isn't it, of us taking our worries and our concerns and holding them up to God. And at the same time, with our open hands, receiving from God his comfort and his peace. And so a few moments of quiet. Amen.